It's good news, isn't it? Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. We deserve the judgment of God, but we get the mercy of God because in our place, Jesus took the judgment of God. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24, we're going to read the first seven verses as we begin this morning. The allergies are wreaking havoc with my voice. <coughs> uh, they seem they keep doing that. It's been weeks and weeks of this, but uh, we'll get through it, won't we? First Samuel chapter twenty-four, verses one to seven. That's not all the ground we will cover, but that's what we'll read. So, beginning in verse one, this is what the Spirit says to us. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterwards David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word as those who need it, as those who need to drink it in like water. Our souls are thirsty for your truth for you. We thank you for your mercy toward us, and we pray, God, that it will motivate us to be merciful toward others, to leave the judgment of our enemies into your hands. Teach us now through your words that we might gain wisdom to live this life and a heart to love you and obey you more and trust you more. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I was about seven years old, our house was broken into. It was a new house in a new neighborhood. We hadn't lived there long, and whoever broke in stole jewelry, jewelry that, belonged, that had belonged to my mother who had passed away a couple of years prior. Needless to say, seven-year-old Toby was angry. And I remember after that I had a series of dreams where the thief came back, but this time I was ready for him. I had black belt abilities, though I had never taken martial arts a day in my life. And I would fight the bad guy, and I would teach him a lesson, and I'd take him down. 
No doubt, as each of us has learned about the break-ins here at Gray Road, something in us wants justice, uh, which is good and right. We worship and serve and are made in the image of a God who is concerned and committed to justice. But for many, a desire doesn't stop there. There's also something in us that thinks that we deserve to be the ones who dole out the justice. Like Wyatt Earp in the movie Tombstone. You know, his, his brother is killed by this gang called the Cowboys. And Wyatt goes on this rampage of revenge, killing every cowboy that he can find. That kind of vigilante justice resonates with many people today. You see, from the playground to the boardroom to the living room, giving our own version of justice, getting revenge, is a kind of natural and sinful instinct. It's always been that way. It was present in David's day, and that's what we see rise up in various ways from 1 Samuel chapter 24 to 26, which is our text for this morning. In each of these chapters, in each of these three chapters, David has three separate opportunities to dish out justice. In some cases, he is encouraged to do it, in others, it just wells up in him. But by God's grace and providence, he doesn't do it. Instead, he learns to trust the Lord to deal with his enemies. And that's the main idea of these three chapters, that God's chosen king trusts the Lord to deal with his enemies. Well, let's begin by looking at the fact that David trusts the Lord to deal with Saul. And we see that in chapter 24 as well as in chapter 26. In chapter 24, we see David trusts the Lord in a cave. As we read, Saul has found out that David is in En Gedi, which is on the west bank of the Dead Sea. And so he heads that way with this elite squad of 3,000 men. David's crew, in contrast, is much smaller and not what you would call elite. Uh, The description of who came along with David is back in chapter 22, verse 2. It's these folks, everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul. This is David's crew, the disenfranchised, those in distress, those in debt. These guys come along with David. It's not exactly a special forces unit that David has in En Gedi. And once Saul arrives, he needs some privacy because, quite frankly, he needs to relieve himself and he needs to take a rest. And in God's providence, Saul wanders into the very cave where David and his men are. David's hiding out and his men recognize that it is only by God's providence that Saul came into this very cave. And what they say is, this is the moment. God wants you to take him out. Look at verse 4. Of chapter 24, the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. They say, look, this has to be God's will. God brought him into this cave. We can sneak attack. 
And David must have, in some sense, agreed that this was some kind of opportunity because he goes and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe, maybe as a souvenir, but immediately his heart is cut to the quick. Conviction sets in. His heart is wrong and he repents. Look at verses 5 to 7 again. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. You see, something rose up in David when they said, Hey, God's providence is at work here. God is going to put down your enemies. This is the very fulfillment of that thing, David. And when David hears it, he thinks, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. I'll go get a piece of his robe, and then we'll really get to going. So he goes and he gets his robe, and as soon as he cuts his robe, God cuts his heart with conviction. And so he can't do it. But why? Well, look at verse 7. So David, after this realization on David's part, look at what David did. David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Now, that sounds very nice, doesn't it? Like they sat down and they had a debate, and all the men put forward their ideas, and David put forward his ideas, and David was more persuasive, so David persuaded them. Well, actually, the word persuaded means he tore them apart. Basically, he rips them open verbally and says, over my dead body are you going to get to Saul. Does that make any sense to you? This is the man who's hunting him down. This is the man who has 3,000 crack troops outside the cave ready to completely dismember David. Does it make any sense to you that he would now stand before his disenchanted, you know, arguably quite bitter, they're in debt, they're in distress, that he would stand between them and Saul? Why would he do that? Why would he defend them? Why let him go? Well, David actually says why. In verse 6, he says he's the Lord's anointed. You see, to be the Lord's anointed was to have a unique connection to the Lord himself. And even though Saul's relationship with the Lord is disintegrating quickly, David still recognizes that dealing with the Lord's anointed is the Lord's territory, not his. You see, to mess with the Lord's anointed one was to mess with the Lord himself, and David won't do it. Afterward, there's an exchange, and David tries to win Saul back to sanity and help him see the truth that David won't lay a finger on him, that no one's actually out to get him. Let's start reading in verse 8. Afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, "'My Lord the king!' And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his, with his face to the ground and paid homage. You see, David's not just grumbling here. He's actually honoring the king. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, <laughs> but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. 
I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the Lord, as the King of Israel, come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog. After a flea. May the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me out of your hand. Now, did you notice all the language of faith in what David says there? In verse 12, he leaves it to the Lord to judge between them. The Lord will avenge him. Verse 15, the Lord will judge and give sentence and plead his cause and deliver him. David, David's eyes have been opened up to the fact that even the very cutting of the corner of the robe, though it's useful in this speech, was not an act of faith. He was trusting in himself not the Lord. But now his eyes have been opened to that and he trusts the Lord. And in a rare moment of clear thinking, Saul sees what's going on. Verse 16, as soon as David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. David doesn't repay Saul's evil with evil. Sounds like Romans 12:19 where Paul commands us to do the same. Or 12:17, never repay evil for evil. Verse 19 is never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And Saul sees this and sees that this is a man who belongs on the throne. This is a man after God's own heart. And so he asked him to do what, to not do what kings would normally do. You see, when a new king comes to the throne, typically <coughs> he wipes out his predecessor and all his predecessor's family. And you can see that in a couple of instances, like in First and Second Kings and in Chronicles, where that happens. And Saul asked for the same kind of mercy that he received to be given to his family. And David agrees. Verse 22, David swore this to Saul. You see, David does have faith here. He does trust the Lord with Saul, but it's not perfect faith, is it? He begins to take a step himself. He begins to act on his own initiative. He begins to listen to the guys who are disenchanted and bitter and saying, hey, this is your chance, get him. God wants you to get him. But in the end, he trusts the Lord. This whole thing of Saul coming into the cave wasn't so much an opportunity to take him out as much as it was a test. Will the David 
trust the Lord to provide what he has promised? Or will David take action himself? You see, killing Saul in the cave would just be a shortcut. Not taking this shortcut, by the way, is not an easy choice to make because it means more running, more hiding, more sleeping with one eye open, trying to stay alive, more hardship for David. But that path of hardship is the path that God wants him to take, the harder path, the path of obedience and trust. That's the way that God will fulfill his purposes for David. Now, in the 21st century... In the United States of America, we love our shortcuts. You know, lose 10 pounds in the next 10 minutes. Get your PhD only doing work on commercials. We love shortcuts. And as American Christians, the fact is we often want a shortcut to spiritual maturity. We want things fast and easy. Just give me a one-hour Bible study with some coffee and some pastries every week, and that's great. That's how I want my spiritual maturity. Just give me a cozy pew and a service that ends on time, and I, that's the way I want my maturity. You know, give me, give me the learning, give me the sermons, give me convenient ways to serve that don't really take sacrifice. That's the way that I like my spiritual maturity. But hold the hardship, please. Hold the trials. Hold the suffering. But the fact is we want a shortcut. You see, trials, trial, if you've been in the trial recently, you remember this. And maybe you remember, even if it wasn't recently, it feels like they go on forever. It's just the nature of trials. They can feel like they're going on forever. But it is through these trials that God teaches us perseverance and trust. It is through trials, through hardship, that Christ-like character is developed. And it's through these things that our grip on this world is loosened and our hope increases. When our family travels to uh, Knoxville to visit, my, to, to visit my folks and my other family members there, we go east on 74 and we will gladly take the bypass around Cincinnati to avoid downtown traffic so that we can get where we want to go faster and easier. Well, friend, there is no bypass around trials that will get you to spiritual maturity faster. If we want to be like Jesus, we must go through the downtown traffic of trials and suffering that weigh on us, that wear us down often, but teach us to be dependent, to persevere, to put our hope in Jesus and in eternal things not in this world. I mean, consider Jesus, right? Think about the life of Jesus. Jesus is on the peak of a mountain with the devil, and Jesus is offered the kingdoms of the world if he will just bow and worship Satan. Shortcut. But in taking the shortcut, Jesus would have undercut the very purposes of God to save the world through his death and resurrection. Oh, Jesus will have the kingdoms of the world, Satan, 
but it will come through suffering. It will come through the cross. And such is the same for us. There's no shortcut for God's work to be done in us. We must walk the path that He ordains. And that's part of what David learns here. David trusts the Lord in this cave, but he also trusts Him with Saul in a camp, namely Saul's camp. Foot forward to chapter 26. Saul's found out where David is again. This time he's spotted on the hill of Hekilah. Uh, which is in the wilderness of Ziph, uh, further inland than in En Gedi in chapter 24. And so Saul heads that way. He sets up camp. It's late, so he's going to get some sleep. All right, begin, let's begin reading in chapter 26, verse 3. Saul encamped on the hill of Ahakilah, which is beside the road to the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that David came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner the son of Nair, the commander of his army. Saul was lying with, within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. So here's another providential meeting of David and Saul. Another opportunity for David to self-impose his version of justice on Saul. Well, what actually happens? Let's look at verse 6 and 7. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Who will go down with me into the camp of Saul, to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. And when you get down to verse 12, you know why the whole army's asleep. Because the Lord has put them in a deep sleep. The Lord is doing something here. He is going to test and prove David's faith. <clears throat> but there it is. Stuck in the ground. Saul's spear. The very symbol of his authority. Of his power. But to David, it's a reminder of Saul's hatred and the threat on his life. And Abishai knows that. And so look what Abishai suggests in verse 8. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. All I need is one shot, Abishai says. I'll take the spear I'll run him through, he'll be pinned to the ground, and we're out of here. I mean, what sweet irony, Abishai must be thinking. The very spear that had been aimed to run David through so many times, flung across the dinner table to pin David to the wall, can now run Saul through and pin him to the ground. But this time, David won't even entertain the idea. His faith is more sure. He's learned his lesson. God will deal with Saul. And actually, David's not even concerned about how God deals with Saul. Look at this in verse 9. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. 
But take now the sword that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon all of them. So David, my best guess is that David is thinking just like the corner of the robe Uh, even though he shouldn't have cut it, kind of woke Saul up. Now he doesn't actually have to touch Saul. He just takes the spear in the water jar. He's going to use this to speak. They get outside the camp, and David yells back and wakes up Abner. Abner! (laughs) And listen to what he says to Abner. David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Looky here, Abner. Spear and water jar. How could you let this happen? I mean, he's exposing the fact that Abner can't protect Saul. The only thing protecting Saul at this point, in this chapter, is David's faith in the Lord to deal with Saul however he wants. That's all that's keeping Saul from already being dead by the time we get to verse 14. David trusts the Lord. I mean, he could have killed the king, but he didn't. And now David speaks to Saul in verse 17. Is that your voice, my son David? That's Saul speaking. And David said, It is my voice, O my lord the king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains." In other words, David is saying, I am no threat to you. And he's also saying, I don't want to be on the run anymore. That's what verses 19 and 20 are about, this whole deal of being driven out to have no share in the heritage of the Lord and to be told, go serve other gods. He's being kicked out of the land where the Lord is actually the Lord. He's being, it's like he's being chased out of his homeland. He can't, he can't go home. He can't go to worship. He can't be with the people of God. And he doesn't want it to be that way. Now, David knows that God's not bound by geography, that he can worship in his living room, on his recliner, or in his hotel room in another part of the, part of the world. But God promises to be with his people in a special way when they gather to worship him. Does that sound familiar at all? David's not talking about pandemics and social distancing. But doesn't it feel like a tiny little virus has chased us away from the people of God? Saying, just go. 
And that's if we get so comfortable in our recliners and with our, with our, with our Bibles or in our beds just sitting there watching a screen, and it, it doesn't even occur to us that this is incomplete and not what God desires for us, then we're missing the boat on what we actually do every week because there is a mysterious glory in the physical gathering of God's people for worship that cannot be replicated via live stream, via YouTube, via Facebook. This is not good enough. And I feel like we have to say that to ourselves over and over and over again, or we will come to think that the gathering part of being a church is optional. But it's not. When we look at the Bible, guess where the whole Bible is going? To the gathered people of God around the throne from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation crying out, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who is on His throne. There will be no distance at that moment. Thankfully, at that moment, there will also be no disease that may even bring thoughts of distance. But in our hearts, dear friends, we cannot just be comfortable not being at home with the people of God. How at home are you right now? You may be in your home, but how at home are you with not being with the family? I hope it's very disturbing week after week that the length of this has not numbed you to the fact that we need this. Not just God calls us to it, commands us with purposes, but we need this. The mysterious and unique glory of God's people gathering for worship to praise, to pray, to give, to preach, to encourage one another, all of those things. Nothing is an adequate substitute for that. Nothing is. You can ask any missionary who is isolated in the world and doesn't have a Christian within miles to be able to gather. Ask them if they feel that in their souls, and they will say, absolutely, they do. David just doesn't want to be on the run anymore, but he also doesn't want to miss out on being with God's people. Don't let my blood be spilt, and don't let me die out here apart from God's people. David's tired of being a fugitive. The fact is, he doesn't even want the spear and the water jug. He just wants it to be clear that he's not a threat. And again, for a moment, Saul sees it. Verse 21, then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. And again, as we're about to read, David goes on to show his faith here is in the Lord. Verse 23, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious in my sight, this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may He deliver me out of all tribulation. Whether it's in the cave or in the camp, 
David trusts the Lord to deal with Saul. It's not a perfect faith, as we saw, but it is faith. I mean, David may have well prayed at some point, like the father, the desperate father in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, when he prayed, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, not only does David trust the Lord with Saul, David trusts the Lord with Nabal. And that is what we find in chapter 25 in the chapters between. And as we will very quickly find out, again, this is not perfect faith. But friends, let's just be reminded, it is not the quality of our faith that makes the difference. It is the object of our faith that makes the difference. When we trust in ourselves to maneuver, when we trust in ourselves with all our heart and lean not on the Lord's understanding, our way is sure to go off a cliff. But if we will do as Proverbs 3 says and trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, then our way is made straight. But it's a growing process. Now, chapter 25 begins with a brief mention of Samuel, and we'll come back to that. But the bulk of the text focuses on Nabal. But if you notice, as the text progresses in verse 2, we don't actually get his name immediately, which is interesting. Let's read verses 2 and 3. There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Notice it starts by saying, there once was a businessman. Not there once was a man, there, there, there was a man named Nabal that David's going to encounter. He's a wealthy businessman. You even have some of his assets listed here. And then it's almost like, oh yes, and his name is Nabal. Now, the reason why that seems significant to me is because of what Nabal actually cares about. The thing that he cares most about in this chapter is his stuff. He doesn't even care about his wife all that much. Did you notice what it says there? The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. She's beautiful inside and out, and he's nasty and harsh. Can you see him in his recliner? The game's on. He's got his laptop there. He's checking his portfolio. He's texting his sheep shearers to make sure that they're going to meet their quota this week. And all the while, he's barking out orders to the kitchen. Bring me a drink. Make me a sandwich. Make this sandwich again. This is wrong. What is wrong with you? And in response, she attends to him. She cooks, she cleans, she cares, she makes sure he doesn't miss a doctor's appointment. She goes and picks him up at the, at the local bar when he drinks too much with his friends. Now, she's not blind to his foolishness, she sees it. Look at, chapter, look at verse 25, she's talking to David at this point. But she says, let, my, let, my Lord, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. He's as foolish as his name indicates. His name means foolishness. This marriage is one that is marked by contrast. And that's one that, that, that idea of a marriage marked by contrast is not unfamiliar to us today. Some of you are in a marriage like that. You're seeking the Lord. You're serving your spouse. While your spouse walks all over you, 
basically saying your efforts are like nothing to them. Well, dear one, know this. Your service to the Lord and to your spouse is not nothing. It matters to the Lord. It will be rewarded by the Lord. It is beautiful before the Lord, even as Abigail's life was beautiful. Well, this is Nabal, rich, foolish Nabal. And what happens basically in chapter 25 is that Nabal's been getting free protection from David and his men. As they wander about, they make sure nothing happens to Nabal's herds or his employees. And one day, David and his men need food. They are near Nabal's place, so they figure that Nabal's a friend. Surely he can help them out. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. David sends men with the request for food, and Nabal responds in in verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Wrong move, Nabal. I mean, that is a bad idea right here. But you can see all he's interested in is his stuff. My water, my bread, my meat for my shears. Who is David anyway? He's nothing. Lots of people are on the run from their masters. This is just another nobody. Well, it's the wrong move. Listen, look at what happens, verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. Well, there you go. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. You see, dealing with Saul is one thing. He's the Lord's anointed one. You don't touch the Lord's anointed. But Nabal, he's no Saul. He's just a rich, elitist, Ebenezer Scrooge type. And what he needs, as they'd say back home, is a good whooping. And David is going to take care of that. He is going to introduce Nabal to the business end of his sword very, very soon. This is what he says right before. Look at how dedicated he is. A little bit later, he says in verse 21, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. It will be a complete annihilation of Nabal and his family. This is Wyatt Earp taking out all the cowboys. David has forgotten, though, about trusting the Lord with his enemies. I mean, his eyes are red, there's smoke coming out his ears, and he is bound and determined to give his vengeful justice to Nabal. But in God's sweet providence, some nameless young man catches wind of the whole thing and goes to Abigail, to sweet, committed Abigail, tells her what's going on, and she jumps into action. She gets bread and wine and grain and raisins and figs and loads her donkey and goes to intervene for her husband, who by now 
Probably nobody thinks he deserves such things, but she goes to intervene for him. And listen to what she says, verse 23 and 24. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on, on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. And she makes a plea for mercy. I won't read all of it, but I do want to point out something she says that strikes David to the heart. Verse 25, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow. We already read that verse. You know, his name is basically fool. So verse 26, now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. All right? The Lord restrained David from blood guilt and from saving with his own hand. In other words, David did not trust the Lord. He trusted in himself. He came to do his own saving of himself. She says the same thing again, beginning in verse 30. When the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. In other words, she says, look, the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood unnecessarily and from saving yourself, being your own savior. And when you become king, then you won't have to look back on this time and think, I was guilty and I just saved myself. Then she makes this last plea that when all this is settled, will you remember me? And because of all of that, David will relent. But whether she knows it or not, She has struck a chord. Listen to what David says in verse 32 and 33. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Her words pierced his heart so that he could see he was about to be guilty before the Lord And he was about to walk in unbelief rather than faith. He had not been trusting the Lord, but because of Abigail, he will now trust the Lord. And he says, um, uh, verse 39, uh, sorry, not verse 39. He trusts the Lord, and ten days later, look what happens, verse 38. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal. And he died. Now, on a side note, I actually think this might be why Samuel's death is mentioned at the beginning of this chapter. Samuel's death is mentioned, and everybody mourns. And here Nabal dies, and it's not likely that anybody really mourned because of his foolishness. But anyway, David hears about it. It confirms that trusting the Lord was the right thing to do. Verse 39 Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned evil on Nabal on his own head. The Lord dealt with Nabal's evil. He got the judgment of God. 
Now, David trusts the Lord, but not at first, and he doesn't trust Him without help. Did you notice that? I mean, how true that is of us. How we need people like Abigail to basically stand between us and foolish decisions and say, what are you doing? You are not trusting the Lord right now. You need to trust the Lord. I wonder if you have friends like that who will stand between you and foolishness and stop you, who will stand between you and sin and say, no, you cannot go another step. You are not trusting the Lord here. We all need those kinds of friends. That's part of what the church is meant to be, is a family looking out for one another so we don't walk off cliffs and hurt ourselves and others by our foolish decisions. So David trusts the Lord, but he has to learn to trust the Lord. Doesn't that feel like our experience as well? I mean, let's just recap what it, what's, what's happened. David trusts the Saul. Saul repaid David's good, his service in the court, with evil. Nabal returned David's good with evil. He was repaid evil for his good. But in the end, David won't repay evil for evil because he learns through the conviction of God, through the intervention of Abigail, he learns to trust the Lord with his enemies. It's not perfect. I mean, only one person in human history has trusted the Lord perfectly with his enemies. Only one person trusted the Lord when he did good and received evil in return. And that one is David's descendant, Jesus of Nazareth. He was good, lived a good life, the good life, the perfect life, a life of love, obedience, compassion, and good works. And in return, he had plots against him. He got mockery in exchange for his mercy. He was arrested in exchange for setting people free from disease and demons. He was subjected to a trial of lies in exchange for teaching the truth. He was beaten, spit upon, tortured, and killed. And how did he respond to all that evil? 1 Peter 2 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, because Jesus is God incarnate, he held the justice of God in his hand. And those who plotted against him deserved it. We who sin against him deserve it. And that's all of us. But instead of pouring out his justice on his enemies, Jesus goes to the cross where justice is poured out on him for his enemies, for us, so that we can be forgiven and made right with God. And anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus to save them will be saved. And then, by the power of the Spirit of God living within us, we can you and I can follow Jesus' perfect example and David's imperfect example of obeying what Paul writes in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friend, Jesus has overcome our evil with his good. And by the power of his spirit, he calls on us to do the same. To trust the Lord with our enemies, with those who hurt us, with those who are against us. To trust him because as the Father has been merciful to us, so we ought to be merciful to others. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, thankful for your mercy to us, thankful that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, thankful that though justice could rightly be poured out on us in time and through all eternity, yet you have poured it out on Jesus Christ in our place. For that, we give you thanks. For that, we give you praise. We pray, God, that by your grace, you will make us a people who are merciful. Make us a people who learn to trust you with our enemies. Trust you with those who oppose the gospel. Trust, though, trust you with those who would silence our preaching or who would stop our witness. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see them as you see them as your enemies, but not as those who are beyond your reach, beyond your grace, beyond your love. And so we pray even now for those who are not merely our enemies, but your enemies, those we know, those we love, those we live with, those we live beside, those we work with. God, we pray that you will help us to be faithful witnesses to the mercy of Jesus Christ in their lives. And we ask it all in his name. Amen.